A LifeWay research study that was released last year um, had looked at previous uh, years and the decade on um, just the Protestant churches, um, those that had opened, those that had closed, and found that in 2019, um, there were more Protestant churches that closed than that opened. Um, There were 4,500 churches that closed their doors that year and only 3,000 new churches that were started. Um, That's a a contrast to 2014, where there were 3,700 churches that closed, but 4,000 that had opened. Um, We see a a downward spiral um, within America, at least in in the number of churches. And again, this is specifically Protestant churches. Um, There's plenty of studies that kind of delve into the the reasons or the warning signs. Um, One of those is Tom Rainer's book, An Autopsy of a Deceased Church, where he presents some warning signs of churches that are dead or dying. Um, And so these are some of the things that he observed as he looks at at churches um, that are in that stage where they are on the decline. And some of those things he sees are just holding on to the glory days, um, looking back at the things that they've accomplished in the past versus where, where they are now and how God is at work in the church now, refusing to meet the changing needs of the community. Um, failing to, to minister to the needs that there are there, and, and again, just holding on to maybe things and programs that had existed before. Um, becoming inward-focused with their church budget, being more concerned about how are they kind of meeting their own needs or, or doing the things that are just satisfying to them rather than serving their community or, or being focused on, on missions, which leads to the next one, not pursuing the Great Commission, not, not focused on making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ, but more concerned with just uh, pre- preserving uh, the way things have been and, and their comfort within the, the church themselves. Becoming driven by preferences and personal agendas. Um, usually these churches see an increase in pastoral turnover as they, they near that point of death with uh, just more pastors just getting burnt out or frustrated and leaving. Uh, a failure, failure to have regular corporate prayer, not, not prioritizing, asking God to be at work in the church, thinking that they can do it on their own. Not having a clear vision, purpose, and understanding of why does the church meet and gather together. And then becoming obsessed with with buildings and facilities. Just being concerned with the property that they have and and the way that they can just upkeep it and and maintain an appearance. All of those things are yellow flags to us if we see that in the church that we're at or we see that in other churches. these, These yellow flags and warning signs that a church may be dying. But I think there's a deeper problem that we can see in in our our culture today, and that's not that churches that are dying, but churches that have a reputation of being alive and yet are dead. And that's what Jesus is addressing in in this passage this morning. We've seen in the the last couple of weeks as he's uh, addressed the churches um, in Thyatira and Pergamum this call not to compromise. And I think what we see in this letter this morning is what happens when that compromise has, has occurred in the church, when the church begins to drift away. And that's some of the things we can see in culture around us today. We can see churches that have compromised and have drifted away from the gospel. They've abandoned the teaching of God. They're not teaching and preaching from the word of God, but maybe their, uh, their Sunday sermons are just filled with encouraging stories. Maybe it looks more like a TED Talk than it does preaching from, from God's word. Uh, maybe it's a compromise on spiritual leadership. And rather than biblically qualified men leading the church, they've compromised on that and put individuals that, that don't have biblical qualifications, or that aren't men, or that are more business savvy than uh, biblically qualified and led by the Spirit. Maybe it's um, doctrinal issues, things that they've 
uh, compromised on and tolerated. Maybe it's the cultural issues that are, are prevalent that they're uh, giving way out of a sense of love or toleration, but they've watered down the truth of God's word. We can think specifically on that issue in regards to homosexuality or even abortion. Churches that are embracing those as, as ways to love and tolerate others rather than standing firm on the truth of God's word. Maybe it's the gospel itself, focusing on the gospel as, as a means for health and wealth and a happy life, rather than recognizing that the, the gospel, yes, it does bring some of those things for us, but, but the gospel is about Jesus Christ, not about us and what we get out of it. Or maybe it's uh, just not focusing on Jesus. Churches that are proclaiming that there are multiple ways to heaven, that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you have faith, and it's all going to get to heaven anyway. We see it in so many churches around us that there is uh, this drifting, this compromise that is, has led to a reputation of being alive. We can think of these churches in, all around the country that that have worship services, that have plenty of people that gather, that have plenty of facilities and, and a large budget, that have ministries that are meeting needs, and yet they're not proclaiming the truth of God's word. They're not declaring Jesus Christ as the, the way, the truth, and the life. So there's a warning for us in this, this passage. But I think there's, we have to consider that this is not just a warning to those churches out there. It's not just the ones that are dead or dying. There's warnings in here for us as well. There are warnings that we need to be on the lookout, that we need to be watchful to make sure that that does not happen to us. Um, but I think there's a personal application. So think of that as, as, as he closes this letter to Sardis and he says, let the, the one who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to remember that at the, the front of the letter, that there is something for each of us to hear this morning. So let's take a look at, at what this letter has to say, um, both to those dying churches, but to churches that are indeed alive as a warning and encouragement to them. Uh, beginning in verse, verse 1, uh, he writes, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Um, if we think about what this church, the, the city in, in Sardis, um, it's, it's interesting how some of the things that happen that Jesus points out to this church mirror some of the things that have happened in the history of the city. Um, Sardis was formerly the capital of, of Lydia, an ancient uh, kingdom, um, that was one of the most prominent cities from about 1200 B.C. Um, up until about five or 500 B.C. Um, it was, uh, had plenty of kings that uh, had reigned that and ruled in that area. Uh, it had lots of wealth. It's credited as being the, the city that uh, began to first mint gold and silver coins. Um, there was a river that ran through the city that had carried out gold dust and, and silver from within the, the mountains that were there. Um, it was a city that's um, credited with being the first to discover how to dye wool. Um, and there's a lot of, of prominence that the city had once had. By the time we get to this time, in AD 17, there had been an earthquake in the city that had pretty much destroyed all of the remnants of, of the previous ancient city. Um, the Romans had rebuilt it. Uh, it had applied for being one of the cities that would be able to build a temple to um, Caesar, it was turned down from that, and another city was awarded to being able to build that temple. Um, so we see that this city that had once been very prominent uh, and had been very influential in society and culture was now one that had fallen into um, kind of just representing a, a former way of life and just the, the history and the prominence that had been there, but holding on to those glory days, but didn't have them at that moment. There was an unfinished temple to Artemis, that was built there. That's the same goddess that was being worshipped in, in Ephesus. 
Um, and there also seemed to be a large Jewish population. But at some point, the gospel had come to Sardis. We know that because there was a church there. Jesus is writing to that church. Um, they, did, they were alive at one point, even though he's giving them this, this declaration that they're dead. So the church was there. The gospel um, had come and had changed lives and had thrived. Um, if we continue on in verse 1, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We see this is again a, follows the same introduction that the previous letters have of calling back to a uh, description of Jesus. Uh, it's a very similar, actually, introduction as to the one in Ephesus. And if you remember in that uh, letter to the church in Ephesus, he had been calling out the church for falling away from their true love. And there's a similarity here, as we see in the, the church of Sardis, that they were falling away from their true love. And he uses a similar description as being the one who, who has the seven stars, the seven angels of the churches, um, that he's holding them in their hands. We again see God's, the picture of Christ's sovereignty over the churches. Um, but these seven spirits of God, as we saw in chapter 1 as well, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who has the Spirit, and he's holding the churches. He is sovereign, and he has the one who gives life. The Spirit who had raised Jesus from the dead is the one that Jesus has now. So even as he's going to give this message to the, the church of Sardis of, of being dead, he's at the, at the front of the letter saying that he is sovereign over the churches. He cares about his churches. He loves his churches but he also has the power to raise the dead to life. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You know, he's, Jesus is not fooled. He knows what's going on. Even though they have the reputation in their community, even though it seems that they are, are alive, he knows that they are dead. In, in relation to some of these other letters, as we consider that a reputation of being alive, that may not be a good thing. There's no mention of persecution in this letter as there are in some of the other churches. Maybe because of the spiritual compromise that had occurred, they weren't facing persecution. The community was embracing them and just viewed it as, as something good for the town. Um, but we see in some of these other letters that those that are standing firm on the truth of God's word and are proclaiming Jesus Christ are facing persecution and trouble for that. They aren't being embraced by the, the community around them and the culture that they're within. So this, this may not be a good thing that they have this reputation of being alive. Either way, we know that, that Jesus sees that, that that's not their reality. They have that reputation, but not the reality of being alive. They are, in fact, dead. As we think about that for, for ourselves, when we think about how, how we can be on the lookout for that in our, in our own church or the churches around us, um, we need to, to ask that question of what does this look like to have a reputation of being alive? What does it look like for a church to, to look alive to the culture around us or maybe even to us that are sitting here in, within the church or maybe looking at other churches around us? There are, there are things that we can judge it on that are just external factors. Maybe it's judging it based on the number of attendance. The, the, you know, do they have a lot of people that are gathering together on a Sunday morning? Do they have a lot of members um, are there people that are, are actively involved? Maybe it's a question of how many programs do they have? Are there different uh, ministries that they're reaching different groups of people? And maybe we just judge it on, are they thriving in, in those different ministries? Uh, maybe it's the acceptance in the community. Maybe it's, again, do they have a good reputation in the community? Are, are they doing good works in the community? Um, all of those things can, can maybe give an appearance or a reputation of being alive, but maybe they don't give us the true picture and reality of what's happening within that church. So then we should ask the question, what does it look like for a church to, in fact, be dead? 
What would it look like in one of those churches? Or what would it look like within our church if, if there was to be death within the church? Well, I think there's, there's plenty that we could perhaps list and think of. I have four just to think through for us. But number one, just a lack of commitment to the Word of God. A church that is, has abandoned teaching and preaching from the Word of God and letting that uh, set the agenda for, for what we're doing and, and how we're worshiping and serving. As we, if we lack that commitment, we might embrace the cultural trends. We might um, accept the things and, and in an attempt to be loving and tolerant, do things that Jesus has clearly commanded us we should not do or we should not accept. Maybe number two, it's a lack of prayer. That we just think we can do these things on our own. That we just need to try harder. We need to have better ministries, just brainstorm better ways to, to market ourselves, be more creative in our advertising um, maybe start a new ministry that meets different needs and, and practical needs and think that we can do all of that apart from being dependent on God in prayer. So maybe looking at what a, a weekday prayer service looks like might be, might be an indication for us to, to know, is, is our church healthy? Is it, is it relying and dependent on, on Christ? What does our time in, in our care groups look like? What does our time on a Sunday morning look like? Is prayer an important part of that or is it an afterthought? Number three, maybe it's lacking true worship. We can definitely gather together on Sunday mornings and sing songs and have plenty of you know, upbeat music. There's plenty of churches that are writing their own music um, that have bands and worship teams and record labels and all these different things. But just producing a song or singing a song does not mean that a church is worshiping. Are we worshiping in spirit and in truth? Maybe number four, is, are we lacking love? Are we just going through motions, just doing the things because this is what we expect, uh, we think that God expects of us, we think this is what others expect of us, we know that we have to come to church, but we don't really desire to spend time with Christ, we know we have to read our, our word, or the Bible, but we don't necessarily want to know Jesus any better from it. Maybe it's just doing things to help other people because we love them. Um, Jesus says it's easy to do good for those that you love. It's difficult to do it for those that are your enemies. So those are some ways we can maybe just evaluate and consider, is a church, even though it has a reputation of being alive, is it in fact dead? But I don't think we can stop there because we have to remember that the church is not just a building. It's not just an organization. The church is the gathered people of God. It's each of us. So we have to ask the question, not just what does it look like within the, the organization or in other people's lives, but what does this look like in our life? What does it look like for us to have a reputation of being alive but and in actuality being dead? We can apply some of those same questions to ourselves as we, we consider what it might look like in our own lives. You know, we might have the reputation of life just because we are here on a Sunday morning, because we became a church member or we got baptized or were involved in different ministries, or maybe because our social media post has... Uh, is always about Bible verses. Those things can definitely give a reputation, and those things can be good as well. We should attend church. We should encourage others with, with Scripture if you have the opportunity through social media. We should be involved in serving and in ministries. But it's, not the, it's, a, it's a reputation. It may not be a reflection of the reality of our hearts. So we can ask those same four things, again, that we were asking about the church, about ourselves. Are we committed to the Word of God? Are we committed to prayer in our lives, to turning to Jesus for help in all, all of those areas in life, not as an afterthought, but as the first place that we go to? 
Are we committed to worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Are we committed to loving God and loving others? What does that look like in our life? How are, how are we doing on those things? It could be easy to just have that reputation and to fall back on maybe how we were, uh, to just look back at what happened in the past, um, to have that reputation of, yeah, I, I, I prayed a prayer at one point in my life. I got baptized at a certain point. I became a church member. But what, what is actually going on in our hearts right now? Are we actually committed to Jesus Christ? So diagnosing the problem, though, is one thing. Asking the questions, considering where we're at, that's one thing. But it's not enough. So what is the remedy to that? What if we did find that we're lacking in those areas? Or what if we find that we have some of those, but we just need to continue to press on in those? Well, in the next couple of verses, um, Jesus gives several commands and application. There's five different commands that he gives to this church in Sardis. Uh, So beginning in verse 2, the first command he gives is to be alert. They're to be watchful, to be aware that these things are happening. In the twice in the history of Sardis, uh, the, the city was attacked and taken. The city had sat up on uh, the top of a mountain, was fortified all around it. Uh, they thought that it was impenetrable. There was actually a, a saying that uh, to do the impossible was similar to, at the time, it was a, no, a known saying that to conquer Sardis was the equivalent of something that's impossible to do. Um, but in 546 B.C., uh, Cyrus, the same Cyrus who's mentioned in, in Ezra as being the one who uh, sends the, the nation of Israel back to, um, to, to the land after their exile in Babylon, that Cyrus comes against the city, and as he, he's surrounding the city for, for a siege, well, first of all, he came upon the city because um, Croesus, the king that was there, didn't think that he was going to attack. So he had sent all of his troops home for the winter, thinking that, the, that Cyrus would wait until the spring to attack. And Cyrus, seeing that he had done that, rushed all of his troops up to the city. So they withdraw to the, to the top of the city on the mountain, the Acropolis, and they barricade themselves in there. So they're, first of all, we're not being alert and watchful for what is, what is this king going to do to us. But secondly, they, they rested on pride, thinking that their city could not be taken. Um, they did not even bother to defend the walls of the city. They set all of their forces on the one spot where the gates were, where, where you could approach the city, and they left the rest largely undefended, thinking that there was no way someone could come in. Well, the attacking forces saw that weakness and saw that they actually could scale the walls and that they basically just went up, crawled in through, through the side, went in through, through a trap door in the back wall and marched right into the city. A city that had the reputation for not being able to be taken was taken because the the watchers were not alert, because they were not watching. The same thing actually happened 300 years later in 215 B.C., um, perhaps because they they knew about that battle, but they did the same exact thing. The the forces that were there defending the city um, barricaded themselves in, set all the guards focusing on one spot, and a couple of people saw that they could set up ladders on the wall and just scale the wall because nobody was even watching the sides of the wall. So this, this command to be alert would resonate with the people of Sardis. They, they knew from just a historical context the importance of, of being watchful and alert. But from a spiritual sense, they need to be aware. They need to see that these things are happening. This compromise often doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow drift, just slowly embracing these, these things that for throughout all this time and for whatever happened in the, the history of the church of Sardis there from the time that they first heard the gospel until they now get to this point where they're, they're spiritually dead. 
because they've drifted away from the gospel. So he says, be alert. Keep their eyes on those attacks that Satan might have. But not just on the attacks of Satan, but keep your eyes fixed on Christ. It's not just about looking out for the ways that Satan's attacking us, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Secondly, he gives them the command to strengthen what remains, which is about to die. This what remains is people. It's, it's the other people that are there. It's not strengthening ministries and buildings and all of that. It's strengthening the people uh, and, and helping their faith. Now, we will talk about more on this later when it says, which is about to die. This is not to imply that these people could lose their faith, those that had truly repented of their sins and believed in Christ. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But I think it is implying that, that there's this, this downward spiral where they're beginning to lose their testimony to the gospel. They're beginning to lose hold of, of what is true and right. They've compromised for so long that now they have this reputation of being dead. And they need to hold on to that and strengthen the people in the faith and in the truth of the gospel. The interesting thing here, though, is that Jesus doesn't tell the people to get out. He doesn't say, get out of this church because it's dead. He says, strengthen what remains. That he called the people to, to remain and be faithful to help those that were still seeking God. We're going to see in a moment that, that there were some that were still in Sardis that had not be, become defiled. They had not compromised. And so they were to remain and continue to strengthen one another. Sometimes it may be our initial temptation that when we see things going poorly that we just get up and leave. Maybe for some that's the wise thing to do so that you're not sucked in and compromised in those areas. But for some, there is the call to remain and to strengthen those that are around, to encourage them in their faith. But he says that he's found that their works are not complete. Strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. That's what they're to to strengthen, is, is the work that they're doing. This is not to emphasize that the work is what saves them, but it's to emphasize that, that they haven't finished. They haven't seen it through. They haven't persevered. There's, there's compromise that's coming, and they're giving into it. Their, their works are not complete. They're not perfect and fulfilled. They need to see that through and continue to do that. Uh, it was um, Calvin that had said that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. So, Yes, we know that these words, that, that they're to strengthen what remains and that their works are, are lacking, is not the way that they're saved. But if they are saved, if they have believed, repented, and if they are believing in Jesus, it will produce works. And we are commanded in, in many different places in Scripture to do those works and be faithful in them, and that through doing that, we bring glory to God the Father. So those are our first two commands. Be alert. Strengthen what remains. Verse 3, we see the next command. Remember. They're to remember what they have received and heard. Remember them what you have received and heard. The interesting thing about that is that these verbs are kind of backwards from what we would expect to see. If you think about it in logical order of of what you would do, you would first hear something and then you would receive it. But it says to receive what you have received and heard. I think perhaps the reason for that emphasis on those is, is that we can sometimes be tempted to think about what has happened in the past versus where we are in the present. Again, this is what the, the problem with the church was. They had a reputation of being alive. It's the same problem that was in the city. They had this reputation of all the things that they had done. But it was, the question was, what are you doing now? What has happened with where you're at now? They were, they were in fact, dead. 
So as they think about this, this message that they've heard, the question isn't just, have you heard the message of the gospel, but have you received it? And is it in the present now that it's something that you have received? Again, it's, it's a temptation sometimes to think that just because maybe we heard the gospel years ago, or maybe years ago we went forward at a, a youth camp or a youth retreat or wherever we might be and just think that, well, I, I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus at that moment. But the question is, what does your life look like since then? Was it just something that was done in the past, or is it something that has been received and is present in the, for you now? They're to remember that, what they've received, not just what they heard. He tells them also to keep it. They are to keep the gospel that they've heard. It's not just something that they heard one time for salvation. It's something that they need to remember and remind themselves of every day. They continue to sin against God. We continue to sin against God every day. We continue to fall short. We don't fall short once and then get saved and never fall short again. We continue to fall short of the glory of God. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel on a daily basis. Not even just daily, but every moment of the day. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. We need to remember that it's not something we can do on our own. These works aren't just something we try harder at and just do on our own. It's something that Jesus is working out in our lives. We need to rely and depend on Jesus Christ through the gospel. And finally, his, his last command there is to repent. Again, it's, it's almost backwards here when we think of keep it and repent, that you would first repent and then you would follow Christ. So again, there's this, this emphasis on what are you doing now? Not just have you turned once in your life from your sins, but are you continuing to turn from your sins and continuing to follow Christ? We need to continue to live according to the, the way that he's called us. We need to continue to live according to his commands. This is how Jesus says that we, we will know that we love him, is if we obey his commands. So if we're doubting or not sure, are we actually alive? Or is it just a reputation that we're holding on to? It's not a matter of what's happened in the past or just reminding yourself of, of a decision you had made years ago. The question is, are you right now repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ? The, the call that he gives here, the, uh, the consequence of not doing those things, not remembering, keeping it, repenting, uh, or being alert in, in the rest of verse 3, he says, if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. This uh, warning that he gives um, brings back other places where Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 of um, the day that he's coming being like a thief in the night, or in 1 Thessalonians 5, as Paul says that he's going to come like a thief in the night. Um, the, the idea here is that the judgment will come in a way that's unexpected. Just as the people in that city were thinking that they had their security, uh, that the, the walls were defending them, um, judgment came to the city. The, the, the attackers got in. And if they were alert, that wouldn't have happened. And the same way, this, this isn't just watching out for, for Christ's coming judgment. The idea is that for those that aren't doing these things, those that haven't repented, there is judgment coming one day. But for the one who is alert, the one who has repented, judgment isn't coming. They're, they're aware of it because the, really the judgment isn't there. Christ has taken it on their behalf. That's the message of the gospel. So it's, it's not to say, as some might 
like to think that the book of Revelation is going to give us the, the roadmap to the day and the time that Jesus is returning, as if those that he comes on unexpectedly um, can't know the day or time, but those that do believe in him can know the day and time. That's not what he's saying. The point is that we will escape that coming judgment because we have been alert and we've been faithful and we've repented of our sins. So we, we get this message, which really is this, this um, application from Jesus, not just for a dead church or those that are dying, but for those that are alive as well. These application points, to be alert, to strengthen what remains, to remember, to keep the gospel, to, to repent. It doesn't matter whether we're in a dead church or a dying church or a healthy and alive church. These are, are things that all of us need to, to apply to our lives and do. Um, but it's not something that, that we do just by working harder at. This isn't something that is just our work alone to do. Uh, it reminds me of Philippians 2, 12 to 13, where Paul, when explaining this kind of this, this dichotomy in, in the sense between the work of the Spirit and our work that we're called to do, um, says that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We are called to do good works. We are called to work these things out and, and respond with faithful obedience. But we recognize at the same time that it's not our works that are saving us, but it's God who is working in us. Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. He is the one who can bring back spiritual life to this dead church as they respond with repentance and obedience to him. But even more so, we can sometimes miss the thought that if we're gathered together in a healthy church, to think that maybe this is somehow something we've done on our own, and that if we just continue to be alert and faithful, that we can keep our church from dying. But the reality is, Jesus has done all of that for us. We were all spiritually dead before Jesus gave us life. This isn't just where this church was at, it's the reality of where we were all at. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. So just as he's done that for the healthy living churches, he can do that again for, for this church in Sardis. That's why he's calling them back to him. This is not just a message of, of condemnation and judgment that is, is coming, but it's a message of hope that if they repent of their sins and rely on the one who gives life to the dead, that he will give it. And we see that in the, the next verses, that there are still some who are not dead. There are some that have, have remained faithful. So in verse 4, "...but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes." And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. So some have, have remained faithful. It doesn't seem like it's, it's many because the whole church has a reputation of being dead. But there are some who are being faithful to Christ. They are not defiled. It's, it's, <clears throat> they've, they've not given in to the compromise, to the, maybe the culture around them. To Even if the, the church around them has drifted and said that these things are acceptable, they're continuing to remain faithful to God's word, not to, to just what other people are saying around them. They will walk in white. White is a, a symbol for, for purity and for righteousness. We see that throughout much of the rest of, of Revelation, but it would have even been a cultural thing that Roman victors would have paraded through the, the streets dressed in white after their victory. In the same way, those that remain pure will walk with Christ in white. And again, we, we see this because they are worthy. We sang about that this morning, that these you know, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, they're considered worthy because of what Christ has done for them, not because of what they've done on their own. Yes, they've been faithful, 
to not give in to compromise, to not defile their clothes. But that faithfulness is because Christ is the one that gave them life and helped them to walk in, in purity. All of, all of our, our purity and our righteousness is owed to Jesus Christ. It's what he has done for us. It's also interesting to think about that, that Sardis, known as the inventors of dying wool, is given this message that their clothes are undefiled and, and in white. Um, later on, we're, we're told that the way that the, the conquerors robes are white is because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb it's completely contrary to what happens when you dip wool in something red it doesn't come out white and that's what christ though has done for us that through the blood of the lamb we are cleansed that we are our clothes are made white it washes away our sins in the stain of sin so this is this is the, what's awaiting for the one who conquers. Verse 5, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. Again, that, that conquering is not because of their might or their power or our might or our power. It's because we're resting and relying on Christ. And we see a couple of the uh, more promises here. Not only are we dressed in white clothes and do we walk with, with Jesus in victory, but he says, I will never erase his name from the book of life. Now, this, again, is it's meant to be an assurance. It's a promise. This is not a, a threat that Jesus is, being, is, is giving, or it's not to imply that the opposite can happen. The fact that their name will not be erased does not mean that some will have their name erased. Um, that was what we were talking about before, that this idea that even though there's to strengthen what remains and is about to die, it's not as if there are people that are alive in the church that are going to lose their salvation. He's not giving this as, as a means of... Um, to say that they can lose their salvation, but to say those who have it, those who endure to the end, they will not be blotted out. They will not lose, you know, be removed from the book of life. There was at that time a, a Roman practice that if someone was put to death for, for crimes or treason, that their name, if they were a Roman citizen, would first be blotted off or removed from the records. It might have been on a piece of paper or it might have been in a stone tablet and it would literally be chiseled out but their name would be first removed from the, the registry of the citizens, and then they would be executed. And maybe that's what's in mind here, is that Jesus is saying, look, even if you are persevering to the point of death, your name will not be blotted out. I know who are mine, and they will persevere to the end. It's a, it's a promise, and it's an assurance for us. But he goes on to say, Jesus will also acknowledge his name, the name of the one who conquers and who perseveres before my Father, and before his angels. It's interesting throughout this letter <clears throat> that just twice in this verse we just read the, the word name, but it's the same word four times that we've read, and you probably missed it because the English doesn't translate it as name every single time. But it's in verse 1. You have a reputation, same word for name. It's in verse 4. You have a few people. Really, you have a few named among you. Uh, and here twice now in verse 5. I will never erase his name, and I will acknowledge his name before my Father. Jesus knows the reality. He knows the reality of the reputation. He knows those that are remaining faithful. Um, their name is already named in the book of life. Their reputation is secure in Christ. Um, this, he's acknowledging their name before my Father and before his angels. It's, it's a, a callback, in one sense, to Jesus' words in the Gospels. Um, two different places that he gives us very similar language, and this one pretty much combines the two of them. In Matthew 10.32, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 
In Luke 12, 8, very similarly, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. And here we see both of those kind of combined, that Jesus is going to acknowledge those before my God and the angels in heaven. He is going to acknowledge that, that those that conquer to the end, that he has paid for the penalty for their sin, that they have indeed repented and placed their faith in him, and they stand secure in Jesus Christ, uh, acknowledging their names before the Father. But <clears throat> there's also a second part to those passages. There's an opposite side to uh, those that acknowledge his name before men. And, and the opposite side is those who do not acknowledge his name. He will deny before the Father. And that is, perhaps for some there, that's the, the outcome that's awaiting. Those that are, are still spiritually dead. Those that are not conquering and not enduring to the end. Jesus does not acknowledge them. In fact, he denies them. And so it's a call to us as well to, to respond with, with faith and repentance to acknowledge and confess Christ, to believe on him and the things that he has done for us. Because if we don't, if we deny him, if we give in to the, the cultural compromise, if we walk away from him and his word, he will deny those that do that. Our salvation is dependent on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. One of the earliest surviving Easter sermons um, is from a, a pastor named Melito. I was given sometime around 160 A.D. And in that sermon, he obviously is expounding upon Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, sharing the gospel. Um, it's, it's, it, he's very poetic in some of the way that he writes and describes um, and traces God's work, redemption, redemptive work throughout all of history. Um, here's one of the ways he describes the sin that he is, uh, is present in the world around us. He says, Adam left an inheritance to his children. And as an inheritance, he left his children not purity, but lust. Not incorruption, but decay. Not honor, but dishonor. Not freedom, but bondage. Not sovereignty, but tyranny. Not life, but death. Not salvation, but destruction. We see that around us today. In this letter to this church, we see it present even within the church. But Jesus has come to give life to the dead. He goes on to talk about what Jesus did for us. He says, The Lord clothed himself with humanity, and after he had suffered for the sake of the sufferer, and was bound on behalf of the one constrained, and was judged on behalf of the one convicted, and was buried on behalf of the one entombed, he rose from the dead and cried out aloud, Who takes issue with me? Let him stand before me. I set free the condemned. I gave life to the dead. I raise up the entombed. Who will contradict me? It is I, says the Christ. I am the one who destroys death and triumphs over the enemy and crushes Hades and binds the strong man and bears humanity off to the heavenly heights. It is I, says the Christ. So come, all families of people, adulterated with sin, and receive forgiveness of sins. For I am your freedom. I am the Passover of salvation. I am the lamb slaughtered for you. I am your ransom. I am your life. I am your light. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I shall raise you up by my right hand. I will lead you to the heights of heaven. There shall I show you the everlasting father. 
He it is who made the heaven and the earth and formed humanity in the beginning and was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who took on flesh through a virgin, who was hung on a tree, who was buried in earth, who was raised from the dead, who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the authority to judge and to save, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. This is the Alpha and Omega. This is the beginning of the end the indestructible beginning, and the incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the Commander. This is the Lord. This is he who rose from the dead. This is he who sits at the right hand of the Father. To him be glory and might forever. Amen. The reason I read that extended quote from this pastor is because that pastor was in the church of Sardis. Just perhaps 70 years after this letter is written, um, evidently people remained and they strengthened what was there and there was repentance and the church did continue and this pastor did, 70 or so years later, give this sermon that declared the glory of Jesus Christ, that declared that Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. So as we read this, our, our initial temptation might be to think that God is pronouncing judgment and woe on a church that has fallen into spiritual death. But he's giving this command and this call to return to life and return to him, return to the one who can raise the dead to life. And whether that's churches that we see around us in our communities, whether it's ones that we see in our countries, whether we're ever involved in a church that we see that happening, there's a hope and encouragement that Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. And even if that's not in the church, but we see that in ourselves, the call is to remain faithful, to be alert, to repent and to keep the gospel and to turn to and run to Jesus, who is the one who gives life to the dead. This, this letter is a message of hope and encouragement to us that there will be those that conquer and that the, the ones who conquer will never be removed from the Lamb's book of life because he is the one who is worthy. He is the one who died for our sins, who was raised from the dead, and that through him we can have life. Please pray with me. Lord, we pray that that we would be alert, or that we would remember the gospel, we would remember your son, Jesus Christ, or that you would uh, help us to, to walk in, in purity, to not defile our clothes and to give in to compromise in the culture around us. Even if we see that temptation coming from, from within the church, Lord, we pray that we would remain faithful and steadfast. Lord, we pray you might use us as well to strengthen others within the church, um, to continue to hold fast to the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a community of believers within Green Palm Bible Chapel to um, continue to focus on, on Christ, Lord, to not become um, concerned with the things that can um, be good but lead us away from you. Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to remain faithful to you, Lord, that we would recognize that um, you are the only source of life and that pursuing you uh, through means that are, are not the ones you've given to us or pursuing other ways to heaven outside of you, pursuing works or things that, um, that are not what you've called us to pursue or, or compromising on um, your truth, Lord, will lead to death. So Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to remain faithful or that we would continue to cling to you for our life and our salvation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.